Well, um, guys, I'm so excited to be continuing this series. If you've been in at City Life Church for any amount of time, literally <laughs> this year at all, you have likely uh, come on a week that we've been in this series because we've been in this series for literally months. It is the longest series that we've ever been in. It's the story, and the tagline is, the Bible tells a story, and you have a part to play. So we've just been exploring this story together. Pastor Fred has put together this with just his mastermind of a brain, has put together this graphic that just uh, depicts all of the different aspects of the story. And so you can see why we've been in it for so long, right? We've been focusing on different parts. If you look uh, to the left of the cross on the bottom there, you'll see uh, that, that those are the things, the names the words that would describe us before the cross, we uh, were once sinners facing judgment and eternal death. But after the cross, and because of the cross, those words on the right describe us now. We're new creations, as Pastor Justin preached about last week. We are uh, uh, possessing eternal life, as Pastor Fred preached on some months ago. And tonight, I get the awesome opportunity to talk about how we are forgiven. And it may just be because I need to preach the bitterness out of my heart. I feel like everyone and their mom is on vacation this week. And so I needed to preach on forgiveness. I think that's the reason why. But yeah, tonight we're going to focus on forgiveness. And as it says up there, Romans 5, 8, we're going to jump into Romans chapter 5 and read that verse in context. Verses 6 through 10. And if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it there because we're going to just keep touching base right there in this passage Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, it says, When we were utterly helpless, come on somebody, that's me every day, right? (laughs) When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, come on, that's, if that was a spoken word, I'd snap there. <laughs> made right in, the, in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God, this is so good, was restored by the death of his son. While we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. God, we thank you so much for your forgiveness. We don't want to take it for granted tonight. We just, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you call us friend. We thank you that you, you did the most extreme thing you could possibly do, which is to die on the cross to make us Uh, to give us, to present to us eternal life, to make us new creations, and to give us, gift us this forgiveness that we're going to be talking about tonight. We just say yes and amen to what you want to speak. I pray that you would fill my mouth with the words that you want to say and have us to have receptive minds and hearts to be able to receive the seed that you want to plant. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so I want to I start the night off with a participatory moment. I am a youth pastor, and so I like to talk to y'all, and I like it when y'all talk to me too. So if you want to say amen, praise God, hallelujah throughout, that is awesome. 
But I want to ask this question, and you can literally just yell it out wherever you are tonight. It's a very simple question. Nobody get nervous. The question is, what is your favorite movie? What is it? Bad Boys 2? Bad Boys 2? Okay. Bad Boys 2. What else we got? What was it? Apollo 13? Okay. Apollo 13. What was it? My dog, Sam. I do not know that one, but I watch it now, right? Once. Oh, I know that about Travis. What else? Serenity, The Notebook. Keep them coming. Interstellar. That's, that's a deep one. Gladiator, of course. So let me ask you this question, going a little bit further, and I might actually need to come all the way down for this one. So just a couple people, maybe just shout out why. Why is your favorite movie your favorite movie? Like, what's, what's the reason why you would say, oh, yeah? It makes you feel, okay? It's funny and there's action, right? Okay? Makes you think. I love that. Yeah. The relationship between the characters, the best of humanity. Come on, that's good. Anybody else? Unpretentious. Yeah. I, I uh, remember years ago, Travis actually, like, forced all of us to sit down and watch once because he was like, y'all, this is my, my favorite movie, and you are all going to love it. And it was cool. I, w- I wouldn't have watched it without Travis, and I'm glad that I did. But, um, but yeah, notice... All of those reasons that people gave, there's lots of reasons. For some people, it's, it, made them, it made them feel. For some people, it was about the action. For some people, it was about the romantic relationship. And for some people, it's because it made them think deeply. But notice that no one said, my, my favorite movie is my favorite movie because it functions. Like, it just, it works, right? Black Panther is one of my favorite movies, and I... I, I I love the movie for a lot of different reasons, but I wouldn't say the movie is my favorite because of the function it plays in the MCU or because, you know, the plot works, right? Like, there's lots of reasons why I love Black Panther. I love it because of the characters, the acting, the soundtrack, come on, the the Wakanda vibe and aesthetic, right? The cultural significance of it. There are lots of reasons why I love Black Panther, but its function is not necessarily the reason why I love it. I don't know if you've seen or heard about uh, these, um, there's this YouTube channel that makes these things called Honest Trailers. And they do all of these trailers, like if they were told uh, of Hollywood movies, right, if they were made with nothing but like a brutally honest and snarky description of the movie. So I wanted to just show you what would happen if we just kind of like distill the Black Panther uh, down to like just its function or like just talk about it, 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 it with just complete honesty. What would that, that trailer sound like? So if you could play that clip. Journey to Wakanda, a combination of the Jetsons and a 1990s jet magazine. It's the source of all the world's vibranium, a material so powerful, it tops Tony Stark's tech and Doctor Strange's magic as the BS that can do whatever the script needs it to do. There's vibranium on those trains? There's vibranium all around us. That's how I healed you. This secret kingdom has been hidden for centuries, thanks to an ironclad policy of asking people not to say anything. You'll speak nothing of this day. But after sitting out the slave trade, brutal dictators, two world wars, multiple alien invasions, and a sentient AI using stolen vibranium to destroy the earth, they're finally ready to get involved in Bay Area real estate. I bought this building. And that's a building. And that one over there. 
Okay, yeah. If that was the trailer that I saw before the movie came out, I don't think I would be all that interested in watching the movie, right? Uh, how about this one? I'm going to ruin some of you, uh, your, your childhoods here. Uh, my daughter, this is one of her favorite movies, Mary Poppins. She loves it. Uh, what would an honest trailer of Mary Poppins look like? Mary Poppins. Meet Mary Poppins, magic nanny and full-blown narcissist. Practically perfect in every way. Who never misses an opportunity to check herself out. Doesn't get close to anyone. What would happen to me if I loved all the children I said goodbye to? And creates a pocket universe of animals to literally sing her praises. No wonder that it's Mary that we love. But she isn't just a sing-song Slytherin. She's also just a so-so nanny. You're not as well turned out as I'd like. Who leaves kids alone to go on a date drugs them before bed, and gaslights anyone who discovers her powers until they begin to doubt their own sanity. He won the horse race. A respectable person like me in a horse race. How dare you suggest such a thing? It did happen. I saw it. Go to sleep. <laughs> okay. Is it just me? I, I never noticed how narcissistic Mary Poppins was. I just found that out, right? But no, like, we love Mary Poppins, right? We, we, the, all that is actually true, right? Uh, she does not miss a moment to check herself out in the mirror. But we love Mary Poppins because there's more to the story than just that. Somebody say there's more to the story. There's more. I told you I'm a youth pastor. It's just you're going to have to talk to me. There's more to the story. Too often I bring this up and, and I share this, yes, to, to get a laugh, but also because I think that too often when we tell the story of the gospel, this tends to be our approach. I think the gospel is supposed to be our favorite story, right? The gospel, literally, it means good news. And yet we tell the story, albeit honestly, we tell a story that falls short of its beauty. There's this book um, by Makoto Fujimura called Art and Faith. I highly recommend it. It's an awesome book. And he himself is a visual artist. And uh, he, uh, so he writes from that perspective. And it's just kind of like the theology of, of Christian theology from the perspective of an artist. But he says, he kind of coined this phrase of plumbing theology, where he says so often this is how we treat the gospel story. He says, in hearing many sermons across many denominations, I have found that we tend to depict the gospel as a message of God fixes things, which is what I mean by plumbing theology. Plumbing theology answers what God did to fix the problem of the fall through the salvific work on the cross, but it does not address why we need the plumbing fixed to begin with. Like, why are the pipes even there? In other words, he says, so often we boil the gospel down, the story of the Bible down to how it functions for us, how it works. Well, it frees us from emotions of guilt and shame or, or, or frees us from the fear of where we're going to go when we die. And don't get me wrong, right? Those are our big points of, of what the gospel story actually tells. Come on, the, the, the gospel says we're freed from shame. Praise God, right? The gospel says that we're spared from the consequence of hell. Praise God. But there's even more to the story. And so I want to talk about that tonight. This Greek word that's used in the Bible uh, for forgiveness is, is actually, it comes from a family of words that literally means to, to let go, 
to release, to send away, to unbind, to loose, to abandon, and even to divorce. The word by itself almost has like a negative connotation focusing on what's left behind. It puts emphasis on what is being uh, loosed, right? When you forgive someone, right, you're releasing them from the debt that they owe you. When you forgive someone, you're freeing them. You're letting them go. You're letting them off the hook. I think if we want to picture forgiveness, forgiveness is, is really well depicted, I think, in the Exodus story in the Old Testament. Exodus literally means to exit. So there's some, uh, it, it works with forgiveness, right? That in the same way that forgiveness is about leaving things behind, Exodus means to leave, right? To exit. And so when we think about the Exodus story, how many of you, even when I say the word Exodus, you have this, the image in mind of what? Moses splitting the Red Sea. And this dramatic moment of all of the Israelites escaping Egypt, escaping slavery, and leaving it behind. But if you were to open your Bible to the book of Exodus, you would find that that scene takes part way before even the halfway point of the story, right? It's in chapter 14, and there are 40 chapters in the book of Exodus. Exodus, yes, is about an exit. It's about leaving behind slavery. But if you keep reading beyond where the prince of Egypt ends, <laughs> right, there's so much more to the story. I like, uh, like the Israelites who, who, who were freed from slavery and, and left Egypt and their chains behind. We can think about freedom this way or forgiveness this way. As a result of Jesus' death on the cross, we have been freed from the consequences of our sinfulness, leaving behind the power of sin's enslavement. Amen, right? Amen. But there is more to the story. In the same way, we tend to focus on, on what God freed the Israelites from and not what he freed them for. We have a tendency to do that with our forgiveness. If you move forward a little bit in the story, the Exodus story, and go to Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 4. I love this. God just says it clearly. He says it plainly. We're past the Red Sea. They uh, 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 are no longer slaves, and now they're free, and they get to Mount Sinai, and, and God is speaking to Moses, and this is what he says. I mean, he says it clearly here, what he freed them for. He says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, you know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. See, he freed them from Egypt, but he brought them to himself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give the people of Israel. The first thing that we discover when we look at this image and even when we look at what Jesus does on the cross, how it's expressed to us in Romans chapter 5. I've got three points for you tonight. The first one is this, that the more of forgiveness is relationship. The more of forgiveness is relationship. This is the purpose statement, right? When, when Exodus 19, when God says to uh, Moses, I brought you to myself, that is the purpose statement of Exodus, not just to free you from slavery, but to bring you to myself. 
if our focus on forgiveness is so focused on just what we're freed from, and we don't pay attention to what we're freed for, we could uh, run the risk of doing the same thing, right, that we often do with this Exodus story. We think about the Red Sea moment, the splitting of the sea, but we forget what it was all for to begin with. I'm going to say something that might, when it hits your ears, sound a little controversial, but just hear me out all the way. I want to tell you this, that Christ did not die for your sin. That's the way that we, we talk about it a lot, right? When we're telling the story of the gospel and we want to evangelize and we want to witness with all good intention, right? We say to people, you know, Christ died for your sin. It's true that Christ died because of our sin. But Christ didn't die for your sin. He died for your friendship. Romans 5.10 says, Our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son. Sin and guilt may be the premise of salvation, but forgiveness and friendship is the purpose. You know, when I was a kid, I would lie awake at night and just think about stuff. Maybe this is why I became a philosophy major. But um, I have this really distinct memory one night laying up, like late at night, tossing and turning, worrying about heaven. And I, I, I went to, uh, you know, I, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian private school. So I wasn't worried about not getting into heaven. I wasn't worried about hell. I think that at this point in my life, I had probably gone down to like seven altar calls, right? And so I was, I was confident, right? Like I'm going to heaven. But I remember one night wake, uh, lying awake at night and just being worried about heaven because my concern was, would I be all alone? My concern was, will I be able to find my mom? Would I be able to find my, my brother or my sisters? Would my friends be there? Would I have friends in heaven, right? Just from an elementary school little kid mind, I'm thinking about heaven, and I'm not thinking, oh, thank God I'm going to live forever. I'm worried about relationship. I think Sometimes we take this approach when we're telling the gospel and we appeal to this um, instinct of survival that we all have. And we want to tell people, hey, you're going to get to live forever. You won't get to die. And we speak to that instinct, but we forget that there's an even deeper, more enduring instinct in us for relationship. And the reason why that instinct is in us is because God wants that with us more than anything he put that instinct in us to desire community, to desire friendship and marriage and relationship. He did that because in, at the end of the day, it reflects his desire for us. God doesn't just want us to live forever so we can live forever. God wants us to live forever so we can hang out, right, so that we can be friends because that's how badly he wants to know you. What's awesome about forgiveness and the message of the cross and Jesus forgiving us is that it's not something that we, this reconciliation that forgiveness achieves at the cross, it's not something that we have to wait until forever, until we get to experience. Yes, we will get to kick it with God in heaven forever. But you know what's so awesome? You know what happens at the cross? We actually become friends with God immediately. It affects not just what happens in the future, but it even starts right now. So, first of all, the purpose of forgiveness is relationship. But there's even more to the story. Somebody say there's more to the story. My second point tonight is, is this, renaming. Renaming. I love that it says, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, 
Christ died for us. I want to challenge you tonight that if the main purpose of forgiveness is that it reconciles us with God so that we can become friends with him, the forgiveness doesn't stop there. The power of God's forgiveness ripples out into our earthly now and affects even our relationship with the people in our lives. Tim Keller goes so far as to say that if you're unwilling to forgive others, then you're not forgiving yourself. He says, an unforgiven heart is an un an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. And if that sounds heretical to you, then listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3.13. He says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And if Paul doesn't hit it, how about Jesus? Matthew 6.14-15, he says, so if you forgive, Jesus says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to re- forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. Man, as Christians, forgiveness is not something that we can mess around with, right? Forgiveness is not something that, that we can take lightly. Forgiveness is not something that we receive one time at an altar call and just move on with the rest of our lives, Forgiveness is something that we're meant to receive, but it's also something that we're meant to and even required to give to others. And why is that? Central to Jesus's mission on earth was this mission of renaming. There's another book that I have up here, a really great book by a guy named Miroslav Volf. Um, called Exclusion and Embrace. If you are somebody interested in reconciliation, um, definitely check out this book because it's, it's incredible. Um, I've been in seminary for three years almost, and in the three years I've been in seminary, I've been assigned that book no less than three times in three separate classes. So it's a great book. Um, I won't give you mine, but I'll let you look at it if you want to take a picture of something later. But Miroslav Wolf, in this book on basically reconciliation, he talks about this central mission that Jesus has in his ministry of renaming. When we see Jesus enter into the story and come on the scene, we see Jesus in a very specific historical moment. In the moment that Jesus enters into the scene, he's entering into a time when Jewish factions had hardened so deeply around theological and political differences. I don't know if that sounds familiar to anybody out there, right? They had the same problems we did. But these Jewish factions, you know, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the, the, the Zealots, all of these different groups of, of, of Jews were pointing to one another and not just saying, I disagree with you, not just saying we're a different denomination, so we're going to move down the street and open up another church. They're saying, no, we're on the in crowd. We're the people of God, and you are not, right? That was the conversation that was going on with them. And then, you know, there's the other indelible line even outside of uh, uh, the, the Jewish community where, where it was this division between Jew and Gentile. And I want to just pick on the Jews of the time because let's talk about Roman society, right? Even non-Jews and, and, and the pagans in Roman society had a whole structure of differentiation where, where they they had slaves and free, right? Husbands and wives, male and female, not just as distinctions from one another, but as castes, 
right? That certain people were, 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 were in the inside, certain people had all the rights and privileges, and certain others did not. So I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm setting the stage for you because this is the time when Jesus enters into the story. And this is how we know that this renaming is what Wolf calls it, is so important to, to Jesus because he does rename. He calls things that were unclean, clean. He begins to rename and redraw boundaries and borders. People who were outcasts, he was inviting in. He healed a bleeding woman and a blind man. He touched men with leprosy. He made disciples of women and Samaritans and tax collectors. Come on, Jesus. This is why, whether you're a Christian or not, when you look at the historic figure of who he is, was such an incredible person because he saw all the division, stepped into the frame and said, yeah, I see all these categories. I see all these divisions, but I'm going to just move this line here and move this line there. I'm going to rename, reorganize, recategorize some things. And we see this in Romans 5.8 when it says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. You know what that says? It says that there was a line that people couldn't cross between sinner and holy, unclean and clean, and you had to come cross that line if you wanted to be friends with God. But what Jesus did that was so powerful when he died on the cross is before anybody crossed the line, he reached over and said, you once were sinners, but now I'm going to rename you as friend. My heart toward you is forgiveness, even before you get to the line to ask for it. Jesus does it in the most dramatic way possible, this renaming and redefining. Verse 7 of, of Romans 5, he says, Rarely will anyone, it says, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might die. Jesus himself in John 15, 13 says, There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he says that. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then what does he go do? He lays down his life for his enemies. For his enemies. Jesus' death on the cross is so powerful. It's so powerful. Not only because we as individual people get to experience, you know, this, this gift of of loving God, but it defines, redefines some things for us in terms of our own relationship. By dying on the cross for his enemies, Jesus teaches us that forgiveness is for all, which means everyone needs forgiveness, which means we're all sinners. <laughs> and no one is excluded from forgiveness, which means that those people you would rather not forgive, yeah, they're not excluded from God's salvation either. Wolf says it this way, way more poignantly than I could ever do. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. We exclude our enemies from the community of humans by demonizing them. Don't believe me, just log on to Facebook, right? The people who we disagree with, we treat as if they're subhuman. And then we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners by saying, by painting ourselves as angels and, and saints. Christ's sacrifice on the cross, when and how he did it, his forgiveness of us teaches us something about God's love, God's grace, and God's forgiveness, not just for us, but how we should extend it out to other people. It teaches us, right, that we're no better than anybody else. The only reason why you're here 
is not because God cherry-picked you, but because he's inviting everybody in, right? And so that means we got to do the same thing. When we go out there into the world, we got to be inviting everybody else in, no matter what we think of them or their beliefs or opinions, into the forgiveness of God. I want to just throw this caution in here because I feel like anytime you talk about forgiveness, there's people who are wrestling with people uh, trying to figure out who are the people that I should forgive and, 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 and who's safe to forgive and who's not safe to forgive. I, I would say, and what Jesus teaches us, what the cross teaches us is that we've got to forgive everyone, but forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation, right? Forgiveness is, a, 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 Wolf calls it, a will to embrace my heart is saying, you know, you know what? I want to be reconciled with you. I want to have relationship with you. But not everybody is able to cross across that line. You know, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, he did die on the cross for everyone. He extended that invitation of forgiveness out to all. But people still had to come to the cross and accept the forgiveness. People still had to repent. We still have to repent to receive it, right? It goes both ways. Your willingness to forgive can't lead to full reconciliation unless it's met with repentance on the other side. That's true of our heavenly relationship with God, and it's true of other people as well. And so our responsibility is to be like Christ, to have our arms extended out to others, inviting them in. But sometimes people aren't going to become our best friends because they're not willing uh, to, to, to admit they're wrong. You know, I always say the three most powerful words in marriage are not, are not I love you, right? I love you is dime a dozen, right? You go to Hallmark and it's on every card at Valentine's Day, right? I think the three most powerful words in a marriage are I was wrong. How many of y'all know the power of those words, I was wrong? My wife always has, the, she, she tends to be the one who is always coming first after an argument or whatever and saying, I'm sorry, or willing to talk, and I'm the one that struggles, right? But man, to say, to admit your fault in that moment is one of the most powerful things that you can do. All of us have to do that in order to cross that line into reconciliation, but we have to be more like my wife and less like me <laughs> when we're out in the world and be willing to have that talk with people. So what is forgiveness about? Forgiveness is about relationship. It's about renaming so that those who were on, uh, were out are now in, and those who were already in can no longer see themselves as superior than others. But forgiveness is also about remaking. Somebody say there's more to the story. Exodus 19.6 says, again, this is at Mount Sinai, right? Cross the Red Sea. God is talking to Moses and talking to the people, explaining to them what they had been freed for. And he says, you will be, not only did I bring you to myself to have a relationship with you, he says, you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. I love that because what it shows us is that this experience of, of freedom, and even us as Christians, this experience of forgiveness that we've received, it's not just for us. It's not just for the individual people that we come in contact with in our lives, but it is for the world. It's so that we can take part in the reconciliation, not just of individuals, but of the whole world with God. We are a nation, a nation of priests. Think about that for a second, right? The Israelites who were once slaves didn't just become free, but they became the closest thing that you can get to God. They, they, they got 
proximate to God. That is the gift that God gave them. But there's nuance in that. It's interesting that God doesn't say you were once slaves and now you're kings and queens. Or maybe to put it in terms that are more familiar to us in our society today, he didn't say you were once oppressed and now you get to be oppressors, right? He didn't say you were once slaves and now I'm going to make you pharaohs. No. He says you were once slaves and now there is a kingdom. He's the king. But in that kingdom, we're all priests. There's a as Protestants, we like to talk about the privilege and proximity of, of this priesthood, right? There's this doctrine called the priesthood of believers that, that says, this is what differentiates us, one of the things, right, from, from Catholics. We believe, right, that we can, uh, don't have to, to go to a booth to confess or to a priest, that we can go to God ourselves and pray for our forgiveness because we're, we're priests, right? We're a nation of priests. And we can open up our Bibles and interpret the Bible for ourselves, right, because we're, we're priests, and so we, we love to talk about the privilege and the proximity of this priesthood. But I think sometimes where maybe the Catholics get it right and maybe we get it a little bit wrong is that we love the privilege and the proximity with God as priests, but we kind of reject the responsibility. What was it that the priests uh, in, uh, were, were responsible for? The priests were responsible for being that moderator between God and humanity. And let me be clear, right? We believe as Christians, there's only one high priest that allows us access into the throne room of God. But we as Christians still should believe that we have a responsibility to be a liaison, or as 2 Corinthians 5 says, an ambassador to the rest of the world. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Isaiah 49, 6 says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I'll make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. In Matthew 15, it says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. We don't just have the privilege of closeness with God. We have a responsibility to be a light out into the world, to help them see the forgiveness of God, and want to enter into relationship with him for themselves. I'm not so sure that when, when people in the world look at Christians, and I'm not so sure that when people look into, to, uh, of the world look at the church, they see a light, a beacon of forgiveness. There's, a, there's this thing called an art form called kintsugi. Again, it's, this is from Fujimura's book about art and faith. This is kind of the imagery that he offers to compare and combat the theology or the uh, plumbing theology. He talks about kintsugi, and he says, or, or this is what it is. It's the ancient Japanese form of repairing broken teaware by filling the cracks with gold. Ken means gold, sugi means reconnect. And through this process, the teaware isn't just repaired, but remade into art. It becomes more valuable, more precious because of the gold. And because of the, the, the incredible skill with which an artisan comes to, to repair and remake and rebuild that thing. In this book, Fujimura, he uses kintsugi as a metaphor to explain that the, the, the gospel in the fullness, not only of its function, that it fixes the brokenness of our sinfulness, but also its beauty. That the gospel does not just repair, but the gospel also creates something new.
there was a, a, a short documentary that he made, and he was interviewing this Kintsugi master. And the, the guy was saying that, you know, after he started his business in 2010, and then in 2011, there was this huge earthquake that happened. And so many people passed away. Many people lost their homes. I mean, like, it was detrimental. And he said business boomed after that because people would come in with all of their teaware wanting him to do his thing, right, to recreate and remake um, something new out of what had been broken. And he said people were coming in who literally did not have houses. I mean, they were homeless, and yet they were coming in with their teaware wanting it to be remade into kintsugi, right, into something new. He said people whose bodies were broken, right, were coming in with their, with their favorite tea glass, wanting it uh, to be remade into something new. That might sound strange to us because we live in a, a throwaway culture, right? If something breaks, we just throw it out. Got it from Walmart. I know exactly what aisle I can just go back there, right? Or maybe insurance will cover it. I can just buy a new one. But this philosophy of kintsugi, it says and it teaches that everything is redeemable. I think the tragedy is that this American concept of this throwaway culture extends beyond just our objects, but it also includes our relationships. I think we have experienced, we are experiencing right now in our culture and society an earthquake, a social earthquake that is tearing relationships and people groups and political parties, right? It is tearing us apart. And the predominant culture is just willing to cancel, right? Is willing to just throw it away. But that's why Fujimura says, no, the cross is not just plumbing. The cross is remaking. The cross is kintsugi. What we're called to do is to step in these moments, these moments, this moment that we're in right now, and to demonstrate to the rest of the world what it looks like to repair, rebuild, remake something new. Last week, Pastor Justin talked about uh, a new creation. And, uh, and I love that the, the, the word for new that the Bible uses there is, is a word that doesn't just mean like something that you buy to replace something that was lost. That word, it means new in quality, fresh in development, and innovation. Revelation 21 gives us a picture of a new heaven and a new earth, and it uses that word for new. It's not going to be some bright new pearly thing that God buys at Walmart, <laughs> the earth that we're going to get when we enter into the other side of heaven. No, it's going to be a new creation that was formed out of what already is, Broken pieces are going to be brought together and pulled back in. Not replacing the old, but remaking the old into something new. Revelation 7-9 also paints this picture. It says every nation, every tribe, every people, every language will be together in unity, worshiping God. You know, we often imagine the streets of gold in heaven as being evidence of luxury. But what if the streets of gold in heaven are evidence of grace? What if they represent that kintsugi method of filling in the cracks so that every tribe, every language, every people, every tongue would join together, not as 
a brand new thing, but bringing all of their cultural treasures with them. You know, the very things that might irritate you about people who are different from you or think different from you or vote different from you, those things, are, are many of them are coming with those people into heaven. You're going to have to look across the aisle. You're going to have to look across the street and be able to appreciate those people when you get there, when you get to that new earth and that new heaven. It's a beautiful picture that heaven gives us that we as Christians get to look forward to this kintsugi, this, this new creation that God is making. But the responsibility that we have is to take part with God. And man, let it be a joy. We get to be ambassadors with God. We get to be artists with God as we help people, not just forgive people, but help other people learn how to forgive and to reconcile because of the forgiveness we've received for ourselves. So how can it be done? Beautiful picture, but how can we forgive like that in a culture that is more interested in throwing away? I'm just going to close with this. I'm going to leave you with three practical things. These three practical things, they might not sound very practical uh, to you because they all have to do with prayer. But I think prayer might be the most practical thing. (laughs) It It might be the most practical place to start for something as impossible and as impractical as Christ-like forgiveness, right? So three types of prayer that I want to challenge you to enter into as you're recognizing that you're not just forgiven, but come on, that you are renaming and remaking with God as he calls you his reconciler with him. The first is a prayer of confession. Confession. Remember we said earlier that an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. I think sometimes what makes it so difficult for us to forgive others is because we've forgotten how much we've been forgiven. We forget how much we need forgiveness even still today. And so I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you that if prayers of confession is not a practice that you presently keep, Or maybe you're sitting here thinking, yeah, I find it really difficult to forgive other people. I want to ask you the question, when's the last time you prayed a prayer of confession? When's the last time you went to God and said, you know what? Those three words, I am sorry. I think when you do, come on, may he overwhelm you with the realization that, man, those people that you think are so different from you actually are really similar. They're sinners just like you. The second thing is I want to encourage you to enter into prayers of intercession. Again, if you continue reading the book of Exodus beyond the Red Sea moment, and you get all the way to chapter 28, you read a bunch of boring chapters (laughs) or descriptions about the dress of a priest. But actually, Chapter 28 is one of my favorite passages in in Exodus because it reveals something to us about the work of a priest, the responsibility of a priest. Priests would wear these breastplates that would have 12 stones on them. And in Exodus 28, 29, it says that the reason and the purpose for these plates, uh, the, the 12 stones would have the 12 tribes of Israel written on them. And it says the names of the tribes of Israel on the sacred chest piece would be over his heart when he goes into the holy place because this will be a continual reminder 
that he represents the people when he comes before the Lord. When we go into prayer with God, there should be people that come to our heart. You know what? A part of the uniform was these stones that were on the front over the heart, but there were also stones on the shoulder. They also had the 12 names of the tribes of Israel on them. And it wasn't just when a priest went into the Holy of Holies to pray and intercede. They weren't just praying for the people on their heart. They were praying for the people that were a burden on their shoulders. And I don't know if you have a practice of going into prayer. I know I could work on this. Praying for the people on my heart, but also praying for the people who are burdens to me. As priests, that's a part of our responsibility. That's what we're called to do. That is the purpose. That's the more of forgiveness so that we can enter in for them. And my last one is this, prayers of imprecation. It's a big word. Don't have time to unpack it. Pastor Fred preached two weeks ago on what a prayer of imprecation is. Put very simply, it's a rough prayer. It's an angry prayer. It's an explicit prayer. It's a category of prayers. When you open up the book of Psalms, David, he basically is cussing to God and just asking God to do real mean stuff to the people that have offended and hurt him, his enemies. As I was putting this sermon together this week, I'm just going to be very vulnerable and honest with you. You know, there was only so many points that were left on that chart. And, you know, Juice and I had to, to pick something. And so I picked forgiveness and I'm halfway through the week and I'm getting all of this stuff. And I, there was literally a point where I turned to my wife and I go, I don't think I'm the right person to preach this sermon. <laughs> Because you know what? Forgiveness has been really hard for me in this season. It's been difficult. I can't say that prayers of confession and prayers of intercession come, have come easily for me. And so I, I really wrestled. I was like, God, should I change the topic? <laughs> should, should I give this to someone else? Should I wait till Pastor Fred comes back? He can preach on forgiveness. But I really felt like God told me, he said, you know what? There are priests in that room who are also struggling to forgive just like you. And I want them, I want you to express how difficult it is for you to forgive in this season. But I also want you to remind them that when priests go into the Holy of Holies and talk to God, they don't just have to have it all together. They can go in a hot mess and be angry and upset and hurt and not ignore the injustice and not ignore the offense and just wrestle with God. And so I want to just encourage you tonight, if all of this stuff I'm saying, you're like, this is too deep. This is too much. I cannot forgive. That's not for me. I just want to encourage you, don't give up. Because you, as someone who has been forgiven by God, have been given the privilege and the honor to go into his presence and be real with him. To just say, you know what? It's hard. It's hard to forgive. But I'm trusting that you're going to help me to do it. We're going to close. The band's not going to come up. We're not going to do a, a, a closing song. Um, I'm just going to pray for all of us as we close. But I, I want to just say to you, if any of those three things are, are something that you want to begin practicing even now, feel free. We keep this sanctuary a, uh, a, a, a prayer zone, you know, after uh, the service at night so that you can stay in those pews or even if you want to come down to the altar and begin to pray a prayer of confession or a prayer of intercession or imprecation, you're, you're free to do that tonight. And so uh, 
Juice and I will be down here. We can pray for you and with you if you want, or you can just stand, stand down here and pray by yourself just to let people know, hey, don't bother me, I'm praying. And so there will be a time of prayer. You want to pray for any of those things, or even if you want to um, pray about anything else, you're welcome to do that. Uh, everybody else, if, if you don't want prayer, we just invite you to go down to the cafe or, or even to hang out um, in the parking lot out there. You can hang out and take your conversations there. And lastly, I just want to say this. If you're here tonight and you would say, I've never, like I know maybe you've heard that God has, Jesus has forgiven you, that he died for you because that's how much he loved you, but you've never actually accepted that forgiveness for yourself. You've never actually come to repent so that you can receive the benefit of the friendship that he's offering. I want to invite you that you can come talk to me, talk to, to Justin, and we can do that with you tonight. So Father God, we thank you so much. God, we thank you so much for your forgiveness. We thank you that there's more to the story, that there's more to forgiveness. Thank you that you spared us and you freed us and you took us out of enslavement to our sin. You, you freed us from the consequence of hell, but oh God, we thank you that you gave us more. God, you look at us and you say, you know what? I want to partner with you in reconciling the whole world to myself. God, we might be intimidated tonight by that charge, but we press in and we say, yes, help us to forgive. Help us to forgive. Help us to repent. That's where we're at tonight. Lead us as we are joining with you and filling in the cracks and the divisions with the gold of your grace. Help us to be a shining light of who you are. Help it to overwhelm us that because we are forgiven, we can forgive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you all next week.